Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Stick to Wrestling Podcast, more than I could say. I want to thank Leo Sayer for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. In case you didn't think this could be any worse than it was last week, don't underestimate me. Before we get rolling, I want to give everyone a a quick happy Thanksgiving shout-out. This podcast is coming out the Friday before the holiday. I hope you all have a happy and safe holiday. Oh, yeah, this is Stick to Wrestling. Give us 60 minutes, and perhaps, indeed, we'll give you a raw bone and wicked good podcast. My name is John McAdam. You can follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam, uh, search, and follow the guy who is wrestlers fighting with chairs and his avatar. Uh, Join our Facebook group. We have well over 1,000 people who want to talk wrestling with you. And let me see. I I think that's my intro, man. We can just get rolling right into the second part of our Starcade 86 discussion with Steve Crawford. Let's go. All right. I have a lot to say about the next match, which is a scaffold match. The Road Warriors against the Midnight Express. This is our sixth stipulation match of the night. Like I said, a lot to say on this one. Paul Ellering came into this saying that if you drop 30 feet By the time you hit the ground, you'll be doing 86 miles an hour. (laughs) He probably wasn't a physics major. Uh, (laughs) I I was going to say, I haven't taken a physics class in a long time, but check this out. I now have the internet to check things like this out. And I went to something called the splat calculator, which did the math on this for me. It says that if you drop 30 feet, by the time you hit the ground, you will be doing not 86 miles an hour but 54 miles an hour. That's still pretty darn fast. Yeah, you know, and with wrestler's exaggeration, 86 isn't too bad, right? No, no, not Maybe really. You need to double it. So, I mean, they build Big Bubba's being six foot 10, I think. When they were, you know, I was like, hmm, not sure he's really six foot 10. So, you know, in the world of exaggeration, that's not too bad. No, not too bad at all. And I mean, that's something I would have completely bought in 1986. You know, Paul Ellering, smart guy, does a little physics math and 86 (laughs) miles an hour. Okay. He's just got the back of his Wall Street Journal out and he's just, you know, doing the problem like it's a chalkboard. Gentlemen. (laughs) Got his protex. What do they call those things? Protex. Tractor, huh? or something? Pro, yeah, protractor. Thank you. I haven't used yeah. one since the eighties. But <laughs> uh, anyway, Eric Ford asks, "What were your thoughts on the pumpkin dropping promo by the Road Warriors?" I was a kid, but that got over with me big time. My tiny ten-year-old brain viewed this as a match of literally life or death. I thought the videos that the Road Warriors did was excellent, dropping the pumpkins off the scaffold, and one of them. It has Bobby written all on it. One has Dennis written on it and one has mama's boy written on it. Yeah. I, I mean, it, very good. That was probably for me though, like the third time I'd seen that done. I know that I had seen them drop, you know, pumpkins or something like that in Memphis before a scaffold match. Yep. I know the rock and roll express did that against the midnight express in mid South and did something very similar. So, you know, it was just, 
kind of what you did is the visual way to say, oh, this could be Bobby Eaton's head and it can splatter all over the floor. And fans were like, well, I'll pay eight bucks for that. (laughs) How often do I get to see a guy's head splatter all over concrete? So, (laughs) I mean, it was a smart way to build the match. But, you know, also, once you were a fan and you started seeing these same things happening in different territories, you kind of go, hmm, that's that that doesn't seem to be a coincidence. No, but you know what? Back then, very few people had access to multiple territories. Well, then again, WTBS go went around the nation. So what am I talking about? If you lived in Louisiana or Mississippi, you're like, yeah, I've seen this before. Yeah. And some of the promos that Cornette did in Mid-South, he just almost repeated verbatim, you know, later in, in WCW. And, I, and I'm almost thinking, you know, if you lived in Louisiana, you'd be thinking uh, deja vu. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, I, I've, I've read this chapter before, but, you know, it, when something works, you go back to it. Speaking of videos, the one the, the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette did was like five stars worth. I mean, it, I, it's not on Peacock on the um, on Starcade, but it is on the uh, the World Championship Wrestling episodes beforehand. I mean, Jim Cornette was hilarious. He talks about, well, how do you prepare for a scaffold match? Well, you have your mother buy a scaffold and then you hire people to set one up and then you train on it. <laughs> so great yeah bobby you know i've done a lot of things for you some things i didn't want to do <laughs> and you're just, your just imagination goes wild like oh what is the nature of this relationship after all you know yeah i mean cornet was just gold i mean you know one of the things about that era that made wrestling so special was you saw you know cornet for two minutes a week or, you know, if you might see a match as well, but, you know, it wasn't this overexposure. So when you saw people, every, you know, it felt special when you saw these charismatic guys, you know, at the top of their game like that. But, yeah, I mean, the, the buildup was was perfect on both sides. I mean, and and part of this video, Jim Cornette is like, Bobby, you're, you're whining like an old lady. Get up there for God. I'm not scared. You're, why are you scared? I'm not scared. Well, it's because you're not 20 feet up in the air, Jim, but it worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, those poor guys, I mean, you know, they had to go, you know, around the horn doing that in, in Mid-South and then got stuck with it again. You know, it's it's like they got the, the worst gimmick you could possibly get hung around them. Like, you guys are the ones falling off the scaffold. Great. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, that scaffold was ridiculous. I mean, I didn't realize watching in 1986 that this scaffold was like four feet wide and literally one false step and you are dead. This was beyond dangerous. And I mean, just make the thing a little bit wider, for God's sake. Yeah. And and just think about, you know, how heavy are the road warriors legitimately? You know how you know. I mean, you, you've got 750 pounds, you know, of human beings up there at any time. I mean, it's a great visual. It's a great visual gimmick for sure. I mean, even 35 years later, I'm watching this, and you know, there there were spots where any one of those four guys could have fallen off the scaffold, and I don't mean dangling off the edge of it and falling, you know, dropping yourself. I mean falling off this thing. I I, I couldn't. Even knowing that none of the participants got hurt, it was hard to watch because, again, this was so damn dangerous. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 you know, and 
the only guy I've seen actually like perform on a scaffold. Um, Bill Dundee. Bill Dundee. Yeah. He, he had some matches, I think with Coco Ware in kind of the early eighties on a scaffold. And he was just fearless up there. And you're like, it, I mean, it was amazing because everybody else just gets on their stomach and kisses the, the scaffold as soon as they can, you know, but uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a hard match to work. You know, they kept it very short, you know, because you can't really do a whole lot up there. I mean, they, they bloodied up both, you know, Dennis and Bobby and then, you know, Cornette falls at the end. So it was, it was just, you know, a perfect baby face triumph. I, yeah. I thought the, the, the spot where the midnight express blinded the road warriors with pat with powder was really good. That was one way to kind of salvage this match. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what are they going to do in that environment to get any sort of advantage? I mean, that, that made sense. That was the only thing, you know, I mean, physically, you know, they couldn't even do anything in a regular ring to get an advantage over the road worth without, you know, going to the eyes or something. But, you know, in, in that sort of environment, you, you, you had to have, and, and it was a good visual too. It's, it's not like, grabbing a foreign object out of your your tights or something that that doesn't give you the strong visual you throw that powder everybody in the arena sees it oh yep. my god these guys are blinded up here so so it was very smart yeah that was that was a good spot how can i put this i mean what they did was crazy dennis took a relatively safe bump just dropping off the scaffold bobby is dangling from the scaffold and the road warriors are swinging, kicking him side to side. And then Bobby finally, as he's swinging, takes this fall. And I'm like watching this. It would have been so easy for him to have broken one or both of his legs. I mean, it, it was just so dangerous and unnecessary, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, the, the margin for error in that situation just seems way too small, right? I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, when when you look at the risk reward, I mean, obviously they didn't do a lot of those. I mean, could you imagine that the 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 concept they had of the powers of pain doing those with the road warriors? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, more on that in a minute. But now, okay, so we're we're done. The match is over. Bobby Eaton has fallen. He's not hurt. Condry has fallen. Is not hurt. You had to do that after you announced the show. Okay, you call it Night of the Skywalkers. So you have, you know, I wouldn't have done it in the first place, but now that it's already been announced, okay, you have fulfilled your obligation. Bobby and Dennis have fallen off this thing. Now the road warriors and Ellering are after Jim Cornette. And where does Jim run Uh, (laughs) to the most dangerous place he could possibly go up to the top of the scaffold? Obviously he falls and legitimately ruins his knee, one of his knees for life. And that that's what kills me. Like you'd already done what you needed to do. There was absolutely no need for Jim Cornette to have taken that bump. Jim has said that Bubba was supposed to catch him and he didn't. I think that would have been even a worse idea than him landing on his feet and trying to buckle his knees. Mike Gunner says, I was sitting second row with Dave Meltzer and we both shouted, holy shit, when Cornette fell. I mean, what were your thoughts on that, Steve? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm with you on that. I mean, you know, I think that Cornette, you know, he was so good at just like throwing tantrums and he could have just, you know, thrown a tantrum in the ring and they could have humiliated him some other way. 
and there was there was no reason to physically hurt this guy who's who's not an athlete. And you're exactly. right. If if Bubba would have tried to catch him, they probably both both would have gotten hurt because you've got that weight coming down, you know, from the higher in from above. And and you know, there's probably no way to control that as you fall. And I um, mean, you know, that's one of those things where Dusty's telling somebody to do that. Dusty would have never done that himself, you know? No, Bubba was a big, strong guy. But once again, we're talking Cornette, probably about 200 pounds, and he is going 54 miles an hour. Yeah, there was, there was just no way. You know, there's no way you could position yourself to, to actually physically catch somebody coming down like that. I mean, it would have been a one in a million thing if that would have worked out. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. And sometimes it's like, you know, if you legitimately hurt the heel, then are you still the baby face, right? You know, you can you can go too far with it, and and that's just uh, one fans didn't care. <laughs> yeah. We're a bunch of savages. Yeah, yeah, I know, but it, it, they could have got to the same point. You you've beaten Dennis, you've beaten Bobby. You can humiliate Cornette in some other way, and everybody goes home happy. You know, the thing that bothered me the most after seeing that is okay. We came up with this idea. People got excited about it. It was dangerous at the end of the day, and someone really did get hurt. And, okay, I get you've already booked return scaffold matches around the horn, which is kind of dumb because this should have been a a once-in-a-generational thing. Like, you know, oh, we had the match in Greensboro, and now you get to see it in Los Angeles. That makes no sense to me. But they brought it back for Starcade 87. Like, they made the decision, okay, let's bring this back, even though the last time we did it, it ended in a disaster. And then, like you said, they wanted to do it on the road with the powers of pain coming off a scaffold every night. These two guys weighing over 300 pounds. You know, once again, the, the splat calculator or whatever it is. Yeah, the splat calculator is telling us 54 miles an hour. I would have done exactly what they did. Quit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they would have blown a knee. They would have blown a hip the odds are that one of those guys would have been seriously injured and, and would have been put away for a long time. And, and, and the thing about this scaffold match, you know, it like, it's, it's a big gimmick. It's like going to a kiss show and you got the blood and you got the pyrotechnics and you got the fire. And so, okay, we're going to a wrestling show and we have this big scaffold and somebody's going to fall off the scaffold. And once you've seen it, you've seen it, you know, there's, there's yeah. no drama and seeing it again and again and again, it just lessens the impact of it, you know? So yeah, taking that on like a house show road, you know, that's, that's just crazy. No, this was dusty just being really reckless in my opinion with other people's health. Anyway, uh, Jose Salas Rodriguez, friend of the show. Why always was the plan to do a scaffold match? Was there a plan B? Why did dusty insist on always putting the midnight express on the scaffold? I think, in my opinion, it's just that they showed a willingness to do it, which may not have been. I mean, they got away with it, but I don't think I wouldn't have asked someone to come off a scaffold every night. Put it that way. I might not have asked yeah. them to come off it once. I mean, I think because they'd done it in the other territory, they knew how to, quote, work that match as much as you can, quote, work that match. You know, and those guys were not on guaranteed contracts. They were looking for the big paydays. So I'm sure that was a bigger payday and, and they, you know, were willing to do it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things you do it once and, and fans have seen it. And 
every time you do it more, it's like it's like Cornette when he talks about the Tupelo concession stand. The first one had a big impact, and the second one a minor impact, and the third one no impact. Because yep. once you've seen it, you've seen it, and they should have never gone back to that. I agree. Uh, Bill, and Bill Holt, in my opinion, Skywalker's is one of those matches that sounds great, but then viewing, not so much. Yeah, you know what, Bill? That's part of the magic of pro wrestling. You want to make it sound way better than it is, and it's something that captures your imagination, and then once you see it, I mean, once the fans have seen it, it's like they've already paid for their ticket. Yeah, it's it's like the anti-high spot match, right? <laughs> yeah, you're not yeah, you're not doing any leapfrogs or drop kicks or you know anything in this match. You're you're lying on the scaffold, you're positioning yourself for the fall, somebody kicks your, you know, hand and 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 you pray that you don't hurt yourself. I mean, so that that is the high spot, but other than that there's, you know, nothing that's going to happen for the entirety of the match. You know, you were talking about Bill Dundee on the scaffold earlier. I mean, I remember seeing him on the scaffold in the 80s, you know, uh, via the magic of videotape. And it was almost like Bill was, was we're tempting fate to make him fall off that thing. I mean, he was jumping around. He was nuts. Well, you know, the, the, the story is that before he got into wrestling, he actually worked in a circus in Australia. He did. So, so, so yeah, he may have had those, you know, from being an 18-year-old kid, and playing on trapeze, you know, and, and doing those things that you do in a circus, you know, he may have had the muscle memory to be like, okay, I've done this before. I, I know what I'm doing up here. But, you know, he's the only person you go, wow, I can't believe he did that in that environment. Everybody else you see goes straight to the scaffold and you go, yeah, they're, they're protecting themselves. And that makes sense. Okay. And then we had more intermissions on the show or another intermission, which Shows you how they were just part of wrestling during this time. Now we have the cage match. The Rock and Roll Express against Ole and Arn Anderson. This is our uh, seventh specialty match of the night. Steve, I thought the Andersons coming in were going to win the tag team titles. And when they didn't, it kind of felt like the end for them. And it sort of was. Yeah, and it was a really good, you know, kind of yin and yang of tag teams. Because the Andersons were just classic bullies, right? And they were just yep. ruthless bullies. And then you have the baby faces that fight from underneath and Ricky and Robert, and, and they specialized in selling. So, so the teams meshed really well. And from a physical standpoint, as you look back on it, it's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, the Andersons would have logically won those titles if it were a legitimate sporting contest. Oh, but, yeah. Well, the Rock and Roll Express would have never had them. Right. But, you know, I mean, they were selling tons of tickets and they were bringing in that young female demographic. You know, I mean, I could never understand the appeal of, of the Rock and Roll Express in the 80s. And then I grew up and I realized they weren't trying to attract me. You know, I wasn't the target audience. They were bringing in a completely different demographic that was, you know, paying a lot of money to see them. But yeah, I thought Ole, I thought Ole's psychology was just off the charts. Good. I mean, you know, work the arm, work the arm, work the arm. And you, you literally think, my gosh, he's just going to tear that arm off the shoulder. You know, you think this guy's going to be permanently injured. He was just like laser focused on how he worked. And uh, I, I thought the psychology of the match was really good. I agree. I have it right here in my notes. It's a classic rock and roll express match where the heels are double teaming and Ricky is desperately trying to get into his corner and the Andersons 
were perfect heels for that, like working the arm and and Ricky, you know, desperately trying to get out. Well, yeah, and they uh, they got a lot of heat on Robert at the beginning of the match too. You know, probably because it was, you know, twenty minutes. It was a little longer than what we'd see on a typical TV match. So instead of you know automatically having Ricky in the long sell spot, they had Robert selling for quite a while you know, in the beginning, and then it switched over to Ricky selling a lot. Again, more more juice. I mean, Ricky's face is just covered in blood by the end of it. Um, it would have made sense, you know, for Ole and Arn to have gotten that run at that time. The The only thing I didn't like uh, was the finish. I thought the finish looked weak. Ole, I like the finish. Ole's, you know, got, got uh, Ricky up like he's about to body slam him. Ricky gives him the drop kick, and then Ricky lands on top and it's it's a three count for the win. To me, that just didn't look like it was strong enough to actually hold somebody down who's been on top this entire match. I can see but, that. But you know, but they did a lot of that. Like they sell, they sell, they sell, and then they get the quick one, two, three, and then they get out without a whole lot of offense. So it was it was something that they had done a lot. I've just never been a fan of, oh, I've got a guy up in a in a body slam position and I'm going to fall back and I'm going to get a near fall on myself <laughs> in this situation. You know, I'm drop kicked down and, and now I'm out for the count. I just never particularly liked that spot. But, but you know, Ole and Arn really worked well together. They did. They did. Arn did a good job actually adapting as, you know, someone who – uh, was Ole's partner, someone who played the Gene Anderson role in a way. You know, one thing that that sucked about this, and I know there's there's nothing you can do, but the Rock and Roll Express got insane pops in 1986. I mean, when they came out on TV, it, it sounded like a Beatles concert. It was really crazy. And now they have to edit out Rock and Roll is King. When they edit that out, you're also editing out the pop I understand there's nothing you can do, but man, it sucks. But I mean, you could tell the fans were nuts for the Rock and Roll Express. Yeah, I mean, the the young, good-looking babyface, you know, that's always what Jarrett did in Memphis, and that translated into other territories. I mean, they, they set Mid-South on fire, and then they went and set Crockett on fire. So, I mean, you have to give those guys tremendous amount of admiration, even though, you know, it's not my cup of tea what they did but they did what they did very well and, and, and were very successful at it. So yeah, I thought it was a very well-worked match. It was. And, you know, like I said, they were over like crazy as baby faces. And then two or three months later, Ricky does one of the craziest heel turns ever when he releases boogie woogie dance hall and <laughs> everyone turned on him at that point. It was Oh my, what a huge mistake. Yeah, you know, just keep keep Michael Hayes and, and Ricky Morton out of recording studio. <laughs> yeah, really? Here, here's a microphone. Speak into it. Get in that ring. Do your thing. But, you know, you're, you're, you're not a real rock star. You're kind of a rock star in this different world. But, yeah, it's pain, some painful stuff. I mean, Michael Hayes with Bad Street and the boys are back in town. Like, I thought that was great cocky heel stuff. But Ricky releasing a record and I thought that the music was awful and Ricky can't sing. Hey, I, hey OK, I can't sing either, but I'm not putting out records. And just everyone turned on the rock and rolls when they wrestled the Russians. They got booed when they rushed, wrestled the Andersons. They got booed. It was just the the greatest anti-marketing campaign ever. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was 
one of those things where, you know, that act had a shelf life, right? Because, oh yeah, you know, the people that are really into that um, a year later, they're going to be into something totally different. You know, people don't stay with, you know, the, the, the young girl fan base isn't going to stay with that for terribly long. So, you know, if they're not interested in it, and then you see these, you know, huge hulking guys, who are you going to think, well, who's legitimately going to win this? Yeah, I think I agree with you that the Rock and Roll Express, you know, the, the mania would have died at some point, but this definitely pushed it along really fast. We have another question from our Facebook group, Pete Pingle. Before we get to Ric Flair and Nikita Koloff, Pete says, I was never a fan of Nikita Koloff as a face. To me, it just didn't work. With Magnum out, who else do you think they could have went with to challenge Flair and step into Magnum's spot? Any thoughts on this, Steve? You know, it's it's, it's really tough. Like you say, you could have hot-shotted a, a Ronnie Garvin like they did later. Into a, you know, it would have been a very good match, obviously, if they'd done something like that. If you could have, you know, turned Rick Rude babyface. Very, I mean, you would have had to hot-shot something at that point is, is, is the problem. You just didn't have a natural, I mean, you know, I would not have wanted to see another dusty flare match at that point. So it's, it's, who, who do you put? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I thought the main event of Starcade 86 might have been Dusty's greatest accomplishment ever as Booker. And we're including Florida here too. I mean, you know, his Starcade basically gets wrecked when Magnum TA is injured in a car wreck uh, right before the show. We're talking about like uh, six weeks, I want to say, before the show. And Dusty goes to work and puts this plan together and turns Nikita Koloff. I mean, it was incredible. I The turn aired on October 26, 1986. Uh, it might have been the 25th. I was at Shea Stadium watching Game 6 of the World Series with the Red Sox and the Mets. And, uh, you know, we got home incredibly late. Obviously, I stayed at my buddy's house in Framingham, Mass. Then the next day, I'm like, screw it. I'll just stay here and watch football all day. And then we, t- we turn on the six o'clock show, the Sunday show. And I see Magnet, I see Dusty Rhodes sitting next to Nikita Koloff. And I'm like, what is going on here? It, it had no, no context. I didn't get to see the turn until I got home. I, I recorded it. But, I mean, like I said, I think Dusty's greatest accomplishment was, you know, ha- being smart enough to turn Nikita and salvaging Starcade 86. If Nikita was not available, I say you have to turn Flair and do either Flair versus Arn or more likely Flair versus Tully, which, you know, to me is not a Starcade main event. But again, what are your options? Yeah, I, I agree. When you When you look at all the options, I mean... Nikita fit the time and place. Yes. He fit what was going on in mainstream top of the card pro wrestling at that time in a way that even Tully and Arn didn't. And so I think there was, you know, this fascination with these huge muscular bodybuilding type guys. And I think it, you know, when I look at the rest of the card, it's hard for me to say that somebody would have been better in that spot that night. No, I don't I don't think anyone would have come remotely close to being in that spot. I mean, you know, someone asked, could we have seen Ric Flair versus Dusty Rhodes part three? I don't think so. You know, you would have to do Ronnie Garvin or Manny Fernandez or someone like that. I mean, that 
I was very I'm, I'm praising Dusty here, but one of Dusty's weaknesses as Booker in the NWA is he pushed himself as number one and his sidekick at number two, uh, whether it be Magnum T.A. or Nikita Koloff. And then there's a big drop off to number three. And I think this is where it really could have hurt him. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and you know, you look at what if there'd been a Ricky Steamboat in the promotion and still at that time, or here you know, some of the people who had left that would have filled that spot and been credible. But you're right. I mean, the, the baby face side, the, there was such a drop off after the the first couple of guys. One thing that I thought almost worked against them is they start the entrances to that match and, and then they show a video of Magnum TA. I agree. And it's like, you're reminding us of what we're not seeing. You're not focusing on what we're seeing. And, and it was and they just kept going back to Magnum TA. And it's it was almost like, you know, the promotion couldn't move on from that. Like, like you've lost to Von Eric in Texas. And, you know, they, they should have just said, hey, this guy's great. He's injured. We don't know when he's come back. Close that chapter and move on. But, you know, don't emphasize in the fans mind what you're not seeing i agree with what you said i thought the the placement of the video was far from ideal at some point during the show maybe during one of those intermissions when they were just killing time show the video show it at the arena maybe show it before the card don't show it before the main event i i came away you know the same way you did that that was a bad placement but anyway i'm just a quick note this is Thanksgiving 1986. Thanksgiving 1985, I went to go see Rocky V at the movie theater, and we now have a Russian baby face. And at the time, to me, it was unthinkable. It, I had never seen one before, but it worked. Yeah, it was, it was pretty shocking for its time. I mean, you think about, you know, the, the concept of the foreign heel. It just been around in wrestling forever. But then you've also got, you know, Baron Von Roschke, who, who's, you know, basically started as, as a Nazi. And now he's a baby face. So, a lovable baby face. Yeah, yeah. That's so cute when he used to. So it's, it's just one of those things that if a performer's in the business so long, he's almost got to switch at some point. And, and if the audience respects the body of work, they're going to support it. I can, I can definitely see that. I mean. At the same time, you know, how long was it before we didn't have or, you know, it was really the first Japanese babyface in America? I mean, before I'm, I'm thinking maybe Tiger Mask before that, you know, the, all of the Japanese guys were, you know, uh, World War Two villains. And some, most of them weren't even Japanese. Yeah, they, they came with the word sneaky pressed on put on their tights, right? Yes. <laughs> Announcer, say sneaky six times. Okay. Oh, man. But, I mean, one thing I want to say about Flair and Nikita, I mean, Flair was at his best. It was a very smart match. They emphasized Nikita's power, and then they kind of did the thing with Ric Flair. You know, he has the wrestling skill. One great thing about this match, Tony Schiavone and Rick Stewart were doing commentary, and they were absolutely great here. They knew when to be quiet and they knew when to let the action speak for itself. Like they weren't just babbling the whole time. I don't like to complain about, you know, the current product, but that's what it's like, you know, now it's just this constant string of babble. Like it worked when these guys took breaks from talking and just let you focus on the match. Yeah. I had not like 
heard a lot of Rick Stewart commentary. I know that you know he'd done some work at Continental at some point, but I thought I thought he was very good. I'm I'm, I'm with you. I thought it was very solid. You know they they didn't just you know the worst thing an announcer can do is distract from what's going on in the ring, and and they didn't do that at all. And the and and I thought Flair would just in terms of like his physical conditioning, he looked really good that night, much better than usual, I think. No, I, I agree. And Nikita looked like a monster. Holy crap. What did you think of the match itself? Yeah, I thought I thought Flair worked the match like he should have worked the match. It was kind of like you have to show this guy's power. You know, you have to let him throw you around the ring like a rag doll. And then you go outside and you you're stalling, but you're also giving the crowd time to digest what's happening. You're not doing, you know, five things in a row really fast where the where the crowd can't compute with it. And there were there were times, you know, Flair got the upper hand by, throw, you know, uh, Nikita went for a clothesline, missed it. He goes over the top rope, so it's like his power worked against him. Not not that Flair did anything that smart, but you know, so he gets the advantage in kind of a cheap way. I think that, you know, Flair's psychology and how he called this match was really smart. I agree. And, you know, I like Nikita, but there's only so much you can do with him. I mean, he was not a good worker. He did his thing and he was over. But I mean, I agree with you. I think Flair was a tremendous ring general on this night. A question from Lazo Tactics, and this feeds into what we're talking about. Why have a double DQ finish in the main event? I know they were protecting Nikita, but it's the biggest show of the year. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I did not like that as a finish. Of course, Flair was booked to never really win. You know? I mean, it was it right. was like when he won, it was just it was a fluke, or or George South just finally, you know, lost all of his wind or something. You know? But I really felt if you're building toward a special card, you know, some of your angles should have closure. And so that was part of my problem with the heels beating up the baby faces every time they lost, was you didn't yeah. get the sense of of closure that that we've closed this chapter and now we're gonna move on. But, you know, I, I think that Crockett really hurt themselves by all the times you've, you've got a pay-per-view, you've got a big event, and then you have these non-finishes. You know, nobody comes out looking ahead in the long run. You couldn't put the belt on Nikita at that point in time, but there's tons of ways to work a loss where the babyface comes out still looking strong. And I think they should have done something like that. And then, then the, maybe he comes back and he wins a non-title match. And then you build the feud back off that. Flair got a cheap victory and then Nikita beat him in the non-title. And, you know, he's proven he's the better man, that, that sort of booking. But, yeah, I, I don't like the top of the card not having a finish like that. Well, I, I think they, they can't have a, a non-title match I, on this occasion. I agree with oh, you. No, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you in general that JCP had too many, once again, in general, non-finishes or finishes where the babyface wins on a fluke and then he gets his head kicked in after the match. But this specific match, I think they had no choice but to either go with a double DQ or Nikita winning by DQ. And I think you're better off with the double DQ. I mean, you had just turned Nikita, but you can't make him champion. and you know, they're going to be wrestling rematches for the rest of 1986 into early 1987. You just couldn't do anything. I mean, I always say, look, if you can't book a finish for a match, 
don't have the match. But this is the one exception because, again, they got torpedoed five or six weeks before the event by Magnum's accident. But, you know, I, I in my opinion, in this case, there was nothing else they could do. This was the the best finish. Um, Wesley Wolbert asks, could Nikita have won the belt, in my opinion? No. And if so, what direction would they go with him as champion? Uh, your thoughts, Steve? No, you, you just couldn't. He's just way too limited of a worker. You know, you're, you're the promotion where the where the world champion is working 45 minutes a night. You know, you turn yourself into the WWF at that point, And then how many fans do you lose by doing that? I just, yeah. It would have been a huge mistake. I mean, yeah, there, to me, I always try to be a little bit open-minded and say, all right, well, Nikita would have been an interesting counterpoint to Hulk Hogan. But again, he was very limited in the ring. He was very limited on the mic. And obviously, Nikita as a babyface kind of got old quickly. And I think those were the reasons. I, I counted seven stipulation matches. We mentioned that they were... Ten guys who were bloodied up. I personally wish I counted the ref bump, Steve. I mean, they, they went a little bit nuts on this night. They did. They did. But, you know, that, those were some of my takeaways, too. Way too much blood. You know, a really aging roster. They were kind of lucky that Watts went out of business and, you know, Sting and the Steiners, you know, came in later and kind of refreshed, you know, the roster. And then Luger comes up from Florida because, a lot of those guys that were on that card, you, you couldn't go much further down the line with them. I agree. And it almost felt like, you know, when Watts went out of business and they got all of those wrestlers, it came at a perfect time because a lot of the talent that had been on WTBS since April 1985 was starting to get stale. And of course, we know what happened to most of the UWF guys. They got buried. Um, Lawrence Miles asks, was there an attempt made to have this event shown on pay-per-view and my answer is i mean as far as i know they did not try to put this on pay-per-view and they absolutely should have they had national exposure not only by tbs but by syndicated television wrestlemania 2 was on pay-per-view so you know okay we can at least try to sell wrestling on pay-per-view and i think it would have made a big difference long term because the reason Starcade 87 didn't get it on pay-per-view, and that's a two-part show in and of itself, was because Vince said, well, if you put it on Starcade, we're not giving you WrestleMania, and JCP did not have a track record. If this had gone on pay-per-view and had done well, they would have had that needed track record. What are your thoughts, Steve? Yeah, and, and, and I think it all goes down, I agree with you, and it all goes back to they didn't have the infrastructure. It was a family business. They yep. didn't have the infrastructure to expand properly. They didn't know how to get into the pay-per-view market in the way they should have. It's like saying, okay, Kansas City is a developmental territory, but you don't really, you're not going to really put the resources into that to make it work properly. And so, you know, they're buying these territories that they really don't know how to run. They're not getting the value out of them. They're they're trying to expand without having you know, the proper marketing, the proper television, the, the way to do it. So, you know, you've got Vince who's just developing this this machine, and then you've got kind of a mom-and-pop operation, and that's why it didn't succeed in the long run. No, I, I agree. I don't think there was ever a, a path where Crockett could have beaten McMahon, but there are paths where it could have been more competitive. And I was up here, you know, 21 years old in Nashville, New Hampshire, wondering why the hell isn't this on pay-per-view because I wanted to see it. 
John Ware asks, seriously, why move it out of the Carolinas or Georgia after this? The reason was that, in my opinion, in 1987, Dusty and Crockett started getting a little too big for their britches. They bought a big old expensive office in Dallas. They moved it out of Charlotte, and they wanted to be a national promotion. They didn't want to be stuck seen as a regional outfit, so they moved it to Chicago. And in my opinion, that was a big mistake. I don't think anyone cared about that. Uh, Wrestling fans certainly didn't. And what they wound up doing was angering their local fan base. And let's say you move it out of Greensboro and just have it in Atlanta. Atlanta's a major market. Doesn't that soften the blow? Yeah, it's kind of like, like like you say, they're trying to expand their audience, but at the same time, they're alienating their base audience. It's kind of like if, if I've got a great taco truck and I say, okay, I need to sell more than tacos and I've got 50 customers coming every day. All right, now I'm going to start selling burgers and I'm not going to sell tacos anymore. So I've lost the audience. You know, I've lost yeah. the customers that I have. And I mean, that's a simplistic analogy, but, you know, they, they should have said goal number one, keep the base keep the people who are buying tickets and supporting us, supporting us, and then slowly look at how we can expand in ways that make sense. But it was kind of like an all or nothing proposition. That was always the problem with WCW once Crockett sold it. It was like, okay, you know, we don't care about the current fan base. We're looking for new fans. And all they did, they didn't get new fans. They just ran everyone else off. Kevin Dignam, asks if Magnum didn't have the accident, how much bigger would this event have been? Would it have helped against the WWF? Second part, not a whole lot. First part, I mean, it would have made the event way bigger because Magnum TA versus Nikita Koloff in an I Quit Cage match where that feud would have been settled, I mean, would have been huge. I think it it might have been bigger than Blair versus Nikita, which they were they were turning Nikita eventually. But you know what, though? Then again, I'm pretty sure most, both buildings were sold out. So I don't know if it would have made any more money. Uh, but I, I think it would have made the event bigger. What are your thoughts on that, Steve? Yeah, I agree. I mean, you're, you're talking about the guy who's the number two babyface. You don't have a deep babyface roster. I mean, if he's in there in one of the spotlighted matches, you know, there's going to be more emotion in the building. There's going to be more interest in what happens. You know, it was clear they were grooming Magnum to be a top guy for a long time. You know, he he had the age, he had the athleticism, you know, he had the intensity. And so when you lost that, it's like you don't have something special to plug in behind that. Another attribute for Magnum is I have no way of knowing this for sure. No one does, but I don't think he would have left for the WWF. I think he and Dusty were legit best friends. He was from Virginia. He grew up watching Mid-Atlantic Wrestling. This was had always been his dream. He was a little bit small for the WWF, so he wouldn't have gotten the same push there. I mean, to me, that's an asset. This guy's not leaving. Yeah, I mean, I think he was, you know, I think he was a traditional NWA guy. He did not really have that I'm going to be trying to be a kid-friendly baby face and and sell, you know, pudding bars and stuff like that. You know, I don't think he would have been a good fit for the WWF at the time, certainly not in the spot that he was in in the NWA. All right, I'll, I'll do this next question quickly because I feel like we've talked about this too many times on the show, but Keith McIntyre, I've heard two different ways Magnum was going to be booked. One 
was to win the world title from Ric Flair. The other was to win the U.S. title back. Do you know which was going to happen? Yes, Magnum was going to win the U.S. title back from Nikita Koloff. I don't know where that kind of revisionist history comes from, where where Magnum was winning the title on this night. He may have won it eventually, but he was not winning it on this night. Another revisionist history thing I want to touch upon is Dusty Rhodes gets tied to the truck. Ole Anderson has a baseball bat. He's about to swing it, and Dusty says, make it good. The revisionist history now is that Dusty was really saying to the horseman in character, hey, guys, you better make this count because I'm coming after you. No, people. It was just an editing error. They didn't take it out. Dusty wasn't really in character sending that message. Yeah, he, he was he was saying, please break my skull because because I really want to come back hard. <laughs> yeah, I, that's another thing. I get that it's wrestling. You've got the guy tied to the truck. You've, you've gone through all, you're, you're a horrible person in Ole Anderson. I mean, why stop with one hand? I don't right, right. Yeah. Well, we've done enough, boys. Let's 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 go to the buffet now. Call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> Dusty, untie yourself anyway. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, Ron Wayne. Uh, we had we had this a little bit before. Magnum has the car accident. Nikita's unavailable. Do we get Flair Dusty three? I think we need to stay far away from that. Rob Nelson, and I like this question, were there ever plans on doing a Starcade tour similar to the Great American Bash tours? I'm not saying there should be a scaffold match every night because it's a friggin' scaffold. Rob, great question, and I thought Starcade on tour would have been an excellent idea. They basically did it without calling it Starcade on tour, but I think that would have enhanced the event. Yeah, it would have been smart branding. It would have been a smart branding to say, okay, we're we're doing these house shows for the next three months. Let's call it, you know, Starcade hits Columbus, Starcade hits, you know, Cincinnati, whatever. And, you know, you, you may have drawn more interest because people go, Oh, yeah, that was that was that big event they had. That, you know, this is gonna be special versus this is a house show. Yeah, I mean, I think it would have been great marketing. So, Rob, they should they should have hired you 35 years ago. That's an excellent idea. Christian Body asked, Christian the Ventura Body, excuse me, asked, did too many non-finishes and screw jobs like the first blood and main event begin to erode the trust the fan base had in JCP's two cities? Answer is yes. As time went on, 87 and 88, People just got sick of seeing matches that did not have finishes. No one wins. No one loses. I thought that really hurt the product, Steve. Yeah, I mean, it got to the point where you would see, you know, a babyface win a match, and then the crowd is looking back for the second referee to come out and overturn it. I mean, the the dusty finish that was just done to death. And, and, and yeah, it it was just way too many screw jobs. This has been mentioned a million times, but you've got, you know, Hulk Hogan on one station, you know, beating every monster in the world. And then you've got Ric Flair who who can't, you know, beat a guy who should be in the opening match. So, yeah, it definitely, you know, hurt the promotion in the long run. I mean, yeah, totally. I, I, and I get that Dusty was in uncharted waters. You know, he was used to have rotating wrestlers in and out. So it's OK if Angelo Mosca, who just passed away does a job in Tampa, does a job around the horn, he's going to the WWF next week, or he's going to Georgia next week. It doesn't matter. Um, now he has to protect everybody, and I thought 
He overprotected everybody. But I am not here to bury Dusty Rhodes. I am here to praise him because the summer and fall of 1986 were peak JCP. It didn't get any better than this. I mean, it did not get better than it was on this night. Things started to kind of fall backwards a little bit. But again, I am praising Dusty getting the promotion to that point. Yeah, I mean, he he had a very strong run for a couple of years. It's just the thing where, you know, every every booker needs to move on or, you know, the promotion needs to tell the booker to move on a certain time. And again, Crockett being loyal to a fault, you know, he didn't know, know how to move on from Dusty, just like he didn't know how to expand. But yeah, I mean, for a few years, I mean, this promotion was fantastic. Yeah, a a year later, they were kind of in dire straits. And two years after that, less than two years after that, Jim Crockett had to sell the promotion. So it was a a sad collapse. But at least I want to give Dusty credit for getting them there. So that concludes our Starcade 86 Memorial Show. Steve, you were a wonderful guest. Thank you very much. It's always my honor to participate. And uh, thanks for asking me. All right. Thank you again, Steve. And I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, who went above and beyond to make this podcast happen this week. Lou, that is from the heart. Thank you very much. You were, you were so flexible, and I, I really appreciate it. And I want once again, thank everyone for listening. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols. This concludes our podcast day. 